listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, our passage for the week that we'll look at in just a moment is found in Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. The title of the sermon is Grain, Goods, and Greed. And um, Jesus gives us a parable here that we're going to be looking at momentarily. But let's begin with this passage. I want, to, I want you to see what precedes this parable, what inspires the parable in these first few verses. Beginning in verse 13 of Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Now, there are two main points I want to emphasize out of this passage this morning. And the first one has to do with this man who approaches Jesus with really a demand. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, here's what he's upset about. In ancient Jewish culture, uh, there was a traditional customary practice that whenever the father, the, the head of the household passed away, typically the entire family inheritance would go to the oldest son. If you were female, you were automatically cut out of the deal. Um, And then if you were the second or third or fourth oldest son, you were also cut out of the deal. The entire inheritance would go to the oldest son. Now the dad, if he had opportunity before he passed, and if he wanted to, he could choose to adjust that and disseminate it however he chose. But typically people wouldn't do that because it was a very sacred tradition. And the oldest son, if he had a good enough heart... He could choose on his own to share the inheritance with his siblings. But there was nothing legally that would force him to do that. And so here we have a guy who evidently he's the second or third oldest in his family. The second or third oldest son. And evidently his oldest brother is very stingy and kind of self-centered. And he's withholding the inheritance and guarding it for himself. Which you can understand. That would be very disappointing. 
Like, come on, <laughs> let's be fair. This doesn't seem fair. So he has, a, he has a legitimate, I think, a legitimate, like, gripe. And he goes to Jesus, basically saying, Jesus, you're kind of the most influential voice right now in all of Israel. Everybody's listening to you. You're the most powerful figure in Israel uh, in terms of your influence. So I would love for you, Jesus, to weigh in on my personal gripe here. Jesus, do the right thing. Do the just thing. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Tell him to do what I uh, want him to do. And you can understand why he would go to Jesus, because Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. Now, he's going to lose it probably within a few weeks or months. But at this point, thousands and thousands of people are flocking to Jesus. They've heard of his miracles. He is kind of the, the rising star. And, and this guy understands that if I can get Jesus to put his stamp of approval on my cause, that'll add a whole lot of clout and a whole lot of weight to my cause. And so essentially what he wants to do, and this is the first thing I want to talk about today that I feel led to talk about, is that what he wants to do is attach Jesus' name to his agenda. And Jesus says, no way. Do I look like your judge? Do I look like your lawyer? Do I look like a politician here to resolve all of your personal issues and your political kingdom of the world issues? No, what I've done and what I'm doing is I'm coming to inaugurate and invite you to participate in a whole new kingdom that is not of this world. A whole new way of being a human being and relating to the world around you called the kingdom of God. But be careful about greed. See, somehow or another, in, his, in this man's request, Jesus can see the heart underneath it. He detects something there. And so he calls it out, actually publicly. It says he said to them, be on guard against greed. However, sir, you, do, you decide to handle this inheritance issue with your brother, that's fine. But regardless, you be careful about greed. Because that's going to keep you, that's going to block you from participating in the kind of kingdom life that I'm welcoming you into. And then that's when he tells the parable that we'll look at in just a moment. But first, here's, the, here's what I want us to do as we get started. I want us to use our imagination. We're going to do a little thought experiment. I want you to imagine two of Jesus' disciples... And I'm picking two disciples that we don't often think about um, right off the bat. I want us to think about Andrew, who is Peter's brother, fisherman. And then we're also going to use Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus wasn't one of the 12, but John tells us he was a secret disciple. Jesus had many disciples. He had the 12 apostles, but there were loads of disciples. And Nicodemus was one of them. So I want to use Andrew and Nicodemus in our thought experiment and I'm fictionalizing this. I'll make a, my own little parable out of this. But I'm going to use these two real-life disciples. So I just want to make that clear. We're just using our imagination here. So as we start with Andrew, you know, Andrew we know is a fisherman. He's blue-collar. He's had to work hard to make a living for himself. And so I want us to imagine that Andrew, coming from his background, Andrew has a heart for the underdogs of his society. And he really looks after people that sometimes get neglected, overlooked, and stepped upon by society. 
So let's imagine that Andrew, he has the opinion that this inheritance law needs to be done away with. He hates this inheritance law. And he thinks it needs reform. Let's just abolish it. On the other hand, we have Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, we know, is a Pharisee. In fact, he's actually a leader among Pharisees. And the Pharisees were generally all about preserving the status quo, preserving the traditions of society. Because after all, all societies hang upon traditions. And so I want us to imagine that Nicodemus, coming from his mentality and background, Nicodemus sees this inheritance law as really a staple of society. And it's there, it's put in place to remind all of us that we ought to put our trust in God and not in wealth. And after all, Nicodemus might say, God determines who the firstborn is going to be. So for Nicodemus, in his imagination, for us to even consider getting rid of this traditional inheritance law that's been around for centuries, how dare we take authority to do something like that? We would be turning our society in a very godless, greedy direction, undermining the moral fabric of our society. And that's where Nicodemus is. Now, as long as Jesus is around, Andrew and Nicodemus get along quite well. They keep a lid on this disagreement. But eventually Jesus dies and then is resurrected from the grave. And within a few days, he ascends to the Father. And right before he does so, he gives all of his disciples this commission. And he says, now I want you all to go out and proclaim this good news of the kingdom of God and invite people in on it and make disciples, make students, apprentices of the Jesus way of life. And so everybody does just that. Andrew goes out. And he begins to preach the gospel and he spreads the good news that God's kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's inviting people to join this revolutionary movement. But Andrew also begins to explain to people that part of what it means to be in the kingdom is that we're all going to join together and, and fight against this inheritance law and abolish it. Because, you know, Jesus is all about justice. And justice demands that we get rid of this unjust inheritance law. So part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that we're going to join together and abolish this law. Nicodemus, on the other hand, he begins to spread the gospel. He preaches that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Christ. And he invites people to join in this new revolutionary movement. But Nicodemus explains to people that, well, part of what it means to be a kingdom person now is that we're going we're gonna to fight against those liberals who are trying to undermine the moral fabric of our society. And, and, and Andrew writes a book called Jesus and the Injustice of Inheritance Laws, and he goes on the speaking circuit and becomes the public face of this movement. Nicodemus writes a book called Jesus and the Fight Against Liberalism. And he goes on talk shows and becomes the public face of this cause. And both of them are transfixed by these lenses that they're looking through the world, looking at the world through. And, and meanwhile, Andrew and Nicodemus get so caught up in this political struggle that they forget Jesus put them on the same team. And they're too busy writing about it and fighting about it. Eventually, their emotions get wrapped up into it. And now they barely even talk to each other. They start their own political parties. They start their own denominations. And in the midst of all of that, the cause of the gospel suffers. Because outsiders look at the infighting and say, why do I want to be a part of this? 
These people don't even get along. They can't even agree. They barely talk to one another. And Jesus in heaven is observing all of this saying, do I look like your judge? Do I look like your arbitrator? Do I look like a politician? Didn't I explain this to you? Now this story is a parable, I believe, of much of modern American evangelicalism. Buckle your seatbelts, by the way. Um, on one hand, there are, there are those Nicodemus Christians who will tell you that if you're a true Christian, then you're going to vote this particular way. And you're going to care about these particular issues. And you're going to fight against those who are trying to undermine the moral fabric of our society. And you're going to stand against these causes. And they will tell you this is God's politics. On the other hand, there are those Andrew Christians who will tell you that if you're a true Christian, then you'll vote this particular way, and you'll fight against those who are always trying to hold back certain causes. And if you really care about the poor, you'll vote this way. If you really care about justice, you'll vote this way. If you're really sincere about wanting peace, then you'll vote this way. And they'll tell you, this is God's politics. And what I wanna say to you, as clearly as I can, is this. If you have political views and political opinions, have them. Because politics matter. What is politics? Politics is the way we relate together as a society. Do you think God cares about that? Absolutely he does. So if you have political views, I think you ought to have them. That's wonderful. But be very careful about trying to give your opinions and your views more clout by attaching Jesus' name to it. If you want to say, I think this is the smart way to vote. I think this is the common sense way to vote. I think that if everybody voted this way, it would make for a better society and a better world. I think that's totally fine because we all feel that way about our particular views. In fact, you may be so passionate about your views that you can't even imagine how a sincere Christian could ever even look at it any different way. And I think that's totally fine. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way about their particular views. All the more reason not to attach Jesus' name to it. See, you can only call Christian by definition what looks like Jesus. Christian means Christ-like. So watch this. If we want to talk about loving the unlovable, befriending those who society disregards and neglects. That's Christian because Jesus did that and he taught us to do the same. If we talk about forgiving our transgressors, loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, refusing to engage in reciprocal violence, that's Christian because Jesus lived that way and he taught us to live that way. If we're discussing feeding the hungry, taking care of the homeless, giving generously towards the poor, visiting the prisoner, caring for the sick, healing the sick, that's Christian because Jesus did it and he's called us to do it as well. But when it comes to political kingdom of the world issues, as important as these things are, the hope of the world does not lie in my opinions or your opinions, or anybody else's opinions. It may very well be that our nation and the world would be better off 
if maybe a particular candidate were voted into a particular office, and if we had absolutely nothing more important to talk about, and if we were bored out of our minds, then maybe we could talk about that on a Sunday morning here at Village Church, maybe. But the fundamental structure of the world would still not change. Because the most fundamental problem of the world is the, diabol the, the diabolical oppression within the human heart. And that's something that candidates are not going to fix, policies are not going to fix, laws will never fix, militaries will never fix. No matter what we do, invade a nation, don't invade a nation, enact this law, don't enact this law, vote in this candidate, vote in this candidate, no matter what we do, it's not going to change the fallenness of the human condition. Because the hope of the world does not lie in tweaking government as important as that is. That's not where the hope of the world lies in. The hope of the world lies in those radical, foolish-looking people who dare to take Jesus seriously, who dare to imitate Jesus and allow Jesus full access to transform every fiber of our being, and who, who look forward to the return of Christ, who, when he returns, he's going to make everything right. That's what the hope of the world lies in. So have your political views, but don't misuse Jesus' name by Christianizing them. I've learned over the years that a certain kind of person doesn't love when I preach this way, but what I assure you of is I don't do this to make anyone angry or ticked off at me. Um, it's purely my desire and attempt to please and be faithful to Jesus. And I may succeed or fail at that, but hopefully you can receive it with that heart and mind. Amen. That's, I have one life. I have one life. I have one calling. That's what I want to spend it doing. Being having my allegiance to Christ, not to any particular platform or agenda. Amen. Because I believe the kingdom of Christ transcends all of that. All right. This brings me to the second point of the message. And I do think that they are related, but it's going to seem like I'm taking a bizarre right turn. But just stick with me. It has to do with the parable that Jesus then brings. And he, he, um, he closes with this phrase. He says, so it is with everyone who is, stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And that's the phrase I want to explore with you. What does it mean to be rich toward God? And the parable has to do with a farmer who has this incredible bumper crop, more than what he was expecting. And he says to himself, I could really at this point just take it easy, put all of this in my barns, build some bigger barns, and just retire. And God says to him, you fool. Now, I, I think it's important for me to note something with you. Notice that the problem of this man is not that he had become rich. Jesus does not blame the guy for being rich. It wasn't his fault that his fields produced an abundant harvest. In fact, that's incredible blessing from God. The problem is that he wasn't also rich toward God. That's the punchline of the parable. So it is with everyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So what does it mean? Let's ponder this for a couple minutes. What does it mean to be rich toward God? And I want to give you a way to approach it. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. We are to mimic God. That, that the Holy Spirit over time 
wants to produce in us the same kind of heart and values and character traits that God possesses. Be imitators of God. So I think maybe the best way to answer this question is to begin by asking, how is God rich towards us? If we're called to mimic God, then if we can have a clear understanding of the ways that God is rich towards us, that gives us a clear vision now of what we are to mimic and what it means to be rich towards God. So let's, let's just spend some time thinking about that for just a moment. How is God rich towards us? Now here's the deal. You, you may not have realized this, but you were dead in your sins. Before you and I, in the core of our being, before we say yes to Jesus, and, the sur- and we surrender the trajectory of our lives to Christ, and, and he makes us new. You know, our fancy word for that is regeneration. Before that happens, you were dead in your sins. You may not have felt dead, but that's just evidence of your deadness. You were so dead you didn't feel dead. And left to ourselves, apart from the grace of God, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot rescue ourselves from our deadness. We don't even want to rescue ourselves. In fact, we're perfectly content to go on with life without God. We don't, even, we don't even want God. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. And that is the state of humanity in its fallenness. Now, a stingy God who is not rich towards us, a minimal God, first of all, he wouldn't have even created us because even that entails sharing of himself. But if he did create us, then whenever we rebelled against him out of our free will... He would have just said, you know what? You're too much trouble. I'm done with you. And in one sense, he might have been justified in doing that. But the true God didn't do that. Instead, the true God graciously gave us his will in the form of the law. And what the law does, it begins to take us and point us in the right direction, point us in a life-giving direction that's going to lead us in the direction of health and, and harmony together. And if God had just stopped there, if he'd have just given us the law and stopped there, then even at this point, you could say that that's an incredibly gracious gift. He, he didn't even have to do that, but he did. And that's, an, that's incredibly gracious. But God didn't stop there. Instead, he continues to work with us. And he raises up prophets. And he sends leaders. And he sends angels. And he gives visions and dreams. And more and more over time, he gives us a much clearer understanding of his character and his values and his heart and his vision for the world. And if God had just stopped right there, then already you could say he's a non-stingy God. He's a gracious, incredibly generous God. But God doesn't stop there. In the New Testament, it says that while we were yet sinners, while we were separated from him, God gave us himself. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, laid aside his divine prerogatives, set aside his divine privileges, and emptied himself, became a human being like us. Not only just a human being, a human being who went to Calvary. And on the cross, he dove into our hell and took upon himself the, the consequences of our sin. Paul says it like this, and I, I know it's a familiar verse, but I want you to hear it like it's the first time you've ever heard it. 
Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God went to the opposite of himself. This all holy God dove into our sin, that which was antithetical to himself in order to save us and rescue us. In other words, to put it like this, God could not have gone to a further extreme to save us than what he did. He gave us the most priceless, most precious, most opulent gift that he could give us by giving up himself and by being willing to go into this torture chamber, so to speak, on our behalf. That's as rich as it gets. But this God doesn't even stop there. Because not only does he give us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, he then gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when you and I say yes to Jesus with our lives, the Holy Spirit rushes in and fills that void on the inside of us. It's as if God's saying, listen, human race, I know that you're so oppressed by the devil and you're so bound by sin that even with Jesus Christ as your motivation, that's still not gonna be enough for you to live for me, so watch what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna come and dwell on the inside of you and help you from the inside out. I'm gonna put in you my very presence, my very, you're gonna become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and my spirit of love, my spirit of wisdom, the spirit of my transforming power, my spirit's going to come and take up residency within you. So just as, just as Paul said, you can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. What a priceless, unsurpassable gift. But God is so infinitely rich, he doesn't even stop there. There's a whole lot of other stuff that's thrown on top of it. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Everybody say every. Every spiritual blessing. In other words, there's not a single blessing that he held back. God has just lavishly poured out everything he possibly could. He emptied the vault, emptied the chambers of heaven, and has lavished it upon us. He's not only given us himself, he's given us this infinitely rich inheritance in Jesus Christ that sometimes we barely even scrape the surface of. Paul says he's lavished his love on us, we who couldn't deserve it any less. And now, God extends his hand to us and he says, now, with me helping you on the inside, will you now reciprocate to me? Will you be willing to enter into a way of life with me helping you where you can now begin to mirror back to me the way I am to you? The same way that I have poured myself out, holding nothing back without remainder, will you allow my Holy Spirit to help you begin that journey of pouring yourself out for me for all of eternity we'll have this beautiful, passionate, life-giving, joy-replicating relationship. And see, that's what it means to be rich towards God. To the, to the degree that we're rich towards God, we're looking more and more like Jesus. To the degree that we're not rich toward God, our lives emulate the farmer in this parable. And the reason this farmer was such a fool is because God invited him into this passionate, joy-giving, life-giving relationship that would last for all of eternity. And instead, he chose to be rich towards himself 
and it didn't even last a single day. Eugene Peterson translates that last verse this way. He says, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. The farmer lived in this story where the point of everything is to accumulate. The point of everything is to have as much comfort as possible, as much convenience as possible, as much security as possible, as much status as possible. It's the story of the here and the now. And it's a story that's completely oriented around yourself. You may believe in life after death. You may believe in eternity. I'm sure this farmer believed in life after death, but his life did not orient around that truth. And God's inviting us to live in a completely different story with a completely different framework, the framework of eternity. Storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where hurricanes don't come in and take everything you've got. So the question I want to leave us with is this. Are we being rich towards God? In order to answer that, don't ask yourself, what do I believe? Because you probably already believe that you should be rich towards God, and maybe you believe that you are. But as human beings, we have a tremendous capacity to believe one thing, or at least convince ourselves we believe one thing, but actually live in a completely different orientation. So don't ask yourself, what do I believe? Prayerfully ask yourself, how am I living? What would have made this farmer wise instead of foolish is if he would have started by thanking God for this harvest. Saying, God, wow, what an overwhelming blessing that you've given me this abundance. This all comes from you. Thank you, God. And then what would have really made him wise is if he would have said, now, God, I'm the steward. You're the owner. How do you want me to approach this? How can I bring this, these infinite riches or these, this, these incredible riches into our eternal relationship? How do you want me to handle this? And for all he knows, maybe God would have said, you know what, you do need a bigger barn. Because <laughs> that one you got is really decrepit. It's falling apart. So why don't you get yourself a new barn? I, I want to bless you. I want you to hold on to some of this. It pleases me to do that. But let me tell you, Farmer Joe, where, where your joy is really going to come from is when you learn how to look beyond yourself and you start investing in those things that are going to last for all of eternity. Just lavishly pouring yourself out for the sake of other people. And you know, that would have given that farmer so much more joy than if he had just lived his life being rich towards himself because that's a joy that lasts for all of eternity. So in this passage, God is inviting all of us to become wise and to put all of our treasure in our relationship with him let everything else go. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.